are listening to Episode 6 of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 10, St. Cloud Orbital, 2352, February 21. The mess deck was crowded with all hands back aboard. Pull-out was scheduled for 1400, and I knew that Cookie, Pip, and Sarah would have their hands full with people hanging about until 13.30. Francis and I stood together in line, and he kept his tablet where he could see it. I glanced at mine periodically, but nothing showed up. I kept waiting for the automated systems check to pop, but it had the decency to wait at least until we were seated. Shouldn't we go back down, I asked, as Francis started to settle at a mess table beside Brill and Diane. Brill said, you can if you like, but as long as your tablet is displaying properly, she nodded at mine, and yours is, then you can see anything from here that you can see from there. Alerts and alarms will pop up on your tablet. Just don't linger. We have it a bit easier than bridge and engine room crew that way. Diane asked with a smile, Well, Ish, how was your first morning as part of the Foggy Bottom Gang? Well, let's see, we started with sludge and then a 20-kilometer forced march, I joked. Francis just grinned, You're doing great. He turned to Brill then. I didn't have to use the neural whip once. Brill tisked. He's spoiling all your fun, Francis. Maybe later, Diane said with a wicked grin. Brill turned to me and said, Okay, I'm first section. Francis, and by extension, you, are second. Diane is third. We'll be setting second watch when we secure from nav detail around 1700, so you and Francis will get off at 1800. That's the good news. The bad news is that you'll be back on duty at 0600 tomorrow morning. Francis added, Underway we run a modified 24-stand watch schedule-ish. You know we change on the 6s and 12s, but only two sections get the duty on any given day. That means we get one day off out of every three, he said. The basic pattern is 6 on, 6 off, 6 on, 12 off, and then 6 on, 6 off, 6 on, 24 off. And it repeats every three days. Ah, disorientation, I exclaimed. Something I'm used to. Francis and I finished up quickly and headed back down to environmental. Now what I asked when we got settled back in, now we wait and we watch, he said. Wait for what? End of watch or something to go wrong? That's it? It's a good time to study, he said. The trick is staying alert. About 80% of your watch will be just sitting there, but the other 20% is stuff like the VSI, acknowledging the system integrity checks. How do you spend the time, I asked him. He shrugged. It varies. I like to take a walk through the section periodically, check for valve leaks, look for physical signs of malfunction. Just kind of look stuff over. Sometimes you can spot something going wrong before it gets to the point where it affects the sensor displays. That's usually a good thing. And the rest of the time, I asked. Study, read. He shrugged. I'm not too motivated to advance. I don't want to leave the Lois, and there are no Spec 2 slots on environmental here. I should get it eventually, I suppose, but... He shrugged. I like life on the Lois, and advancing means leaving. How did you wind up here, I asked. PhD in astrophysics, and you're making sludge cakes? He chuckled a bit bitterly. Yeah, well, PhD isn't what it used to be. Astrophysics has gotten very politicized these days. Most of the money is in corporate positions in R&D. R&D? In astrophysics? I asked. Yeah, almost all the big corporate conglomerates have what they call R&D branches. It's really exploration and development. They send ships out to sit in the deep dark and look for new systems to exploit. They take about a hundred of these little probes with them and send them out in likely directions. The probes jump out, do a programmed survey, and jump back. Usually, they jump back where they get picked up. The companies extract the data, refurbish the probe, and send it out again. 
Don't we know where the nearby stars are? I asked. Francis shrugged. Well, yes and no. We need a pretty clear spot to put a ship in when we jump into a system. The Burleson Drive gets unstable otherwise. You probably wouldn't want to be in a ship that jumped into, say, a dark matter cloud. Why? What happens? I asked. I don't know, he said. We've never had anybody come back and tell us. I suspect it's not because it was so nice they just decided to stay. Oh, I said. That puts transition in a whole new light for me. I'm glad I didn't know that all this time. He chuckled. In the shipping lanes, it's not an issue. They're scouted out well in advance of any big ship rumbling in. To answer your other question, yes, we do know mostly where the nearby stars are, but we don't know a lot of detail about their systems. There's a lot of systems out there that are in exploration range, but aren't necessarily within commercial jump range, so finding a commercially viable system usually means finding some way to exploit it. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, I said. What's the problem? Typical trip is 18 months between ports, he said. Ouch! That's a long time without fresh stores. Tell me about it, he said. I thought 40 days was long. I shook my head. So how did you get out of astrophysics and into environmental? 18 months at a whack is a long time. First trip, I thought I was going to go out of my mind before we finally got back, but I was contractually obligated to make a second trip, he said. While I was out on that trip, I looked around for something I could do aboard ship. I came back and took the Spec 3 test at the Union Hall, caught the next freighter out of the system with an open berth. After three years in the deep dark, I'm surprised you wanted to ship out. Francis smiled then. I got into astrophysics because I love it out here. I just didn't want to do what they had me doing to serve the corporate masters. That would have been a great job if they did something like sail out, work for a month, and sail back. The automated systems check popped up on us again, and Francis acknowledged it. Three months I could have handled, he said. No sweat. Even four. Maybe six. But eighteen? That was way too much. Brill and Diane came in then, and I noticed that it was about 13.30. Pull out an environmental was no more exciting than it was on the mess deck. Francis and Brill sat in the only two chairs. Diane got a folded blanket out of a storage locker and put it down on the deck next to a bulkhead. We sat on that. We didn't think anything was going to happen, but things were occasionally known to go wrong on pull-out, so we settled where a little bumpiness wouldn't send us crashing into each other or some critical component of the ship. We got the familiar announcement, all hands brace for pull-out, all hands brace for pull-out, over the ship's speakers, and I felt the familiar thump of the docking rings letting us go from the bow, followed by that weird moving elevator feeling, for just a few seconds. The speakers then told us, all hands pull-out complete, tugs cast off and three zero ticks, mark. That was it. We were underway again. I wondered briefly how Sarah was faring on her first pull-out. There wasn't anything more to do in environmental during navigation detail than there was on the mess deck, perhaps less because we weren't planning for an influx of people after the ship set normal watch. I looked at Diane and said, well, we've got three stands. If nothing else is happening, should we replace the algae matrix? It's a good idea, she said, but it's against the standing orders. We have to keep all the shipboard equipment up and available during navigation detail. When we shut down gear underway, we need to notify the bridge and actually get permission first. They never turn us down, but it keeps everybody running the ship informed as to what's happening down here. So we sit, I said. Yep, unless you brought some playing cards, she said. I sighed. This is going to take some getting used to, isn't it? She smiled. Well, welcome to the other side. It's not harder, just different. You'll adjust. It was a long three stands, and I knew I had to find something to do. My tablet was okay, but I kept thinking about the courses in my duffel and my portable computer. I pulled up the handbook and started looking over the full share ratings. My original plan for getting full share rating in each division seemed almost pointless and perhaps naive. 
What was the probability that I'd get stranded someplace after all? I couldn't imagine leaving the Lois in the first place. Still, the extra mass allotment would be nice, so I brought up the calendar. 68 days until the next test period, about 10 days the other side of Dunsany Roads. The Lois was authorized to have a third Spec 3 in environmental, so I turned to Diane and asked, Do you think if I passed the Spec 3, I could get the promotion? She grinned, in a heartbeat. Well, I've got 68 days to study. Think I can do it by then? Two months? Wow, that's ambitious. It took me two tries, but I wasn't working in environmental at the time. What's the downside, I asked. Skip the next test period and maybe hit the Union Hall in Betras. Yep, she agreed. That's about it. Still, two months is a long time, I said, and started looking at the various environmental exam materials with Diane's help. When the ship set normal watch, I bookmarked my place, and Francis showed me the log-keeping functions necessary for assuming the watch. By then it was almost time to hand off to Diane. When our duty was over, it was time for dinner, and I was more than ready to get out of the section. I saw Pip in the mess line standing next to Sarah. She looked like she was settling in well. Pip smiled when he saw me. Hey, Ish, how's life in engineering? Well, it's still a little soon to tell, I said, but I think it'll be all right. I'm off now until 0600. You want to get together when you get cleaned up here? You betcha, he said. we still got business to deal with from St. Cloud. I had to move on then, but it was both good and strange to see Pip from this side of the line. After I ate, I went to stretch out on my bunk and rest for a bit to let dinner settle. I remembered my experience running too soon after breakfast. Around 1930, I found myself beginning to nod off over my reading, though, and decided it was time to run. I was into my fourth lap when Roan Sham caught up with me. Hey, Rome, I said. She grinned at me. How's life in engineering? She asked. I shrugged. It's a living, I think. It feels like I've been on duty for the last 12 stands, though. I'm off now until 0600. She smiled. Second section, she said. Me too. We ran half a lap before she continued. Shifting from portside duty to underway duty is always a pain. You're getting it over with early, though, so you'll be in the groove sooner. In the groove, I asked. Yeah, she said. Watch standing is boring and tedious. That's also critical. These ships don't fly themselves, for the most part. And when something does go wrong, the ship can tell you, but you need to interpret it and make the corrective action. Sometimes that means, like, right now. I can buy that, I told her. So as time goes on, you get into the groove, just like you're probably used to getting up at 0430 every morning now. In a couple of days, you'll be in sync with the schedule. You'll be in the groove. What do you do on watch, I asked. Watch, wait, study, read. It depends, she said. The bridge is a pretty active place. We're really moving fast, and there are adjustments we make to the sails and keel, maybe as much as several times a stand. The solar wind isn't constant, and it's not uniform. We find pockets and swirls in it, and we have to pay attention to stay on course. Sounds interesting, I said, remembering my last watch with Francis. I'm building it up, she said with a grin. Mostly the autopilot handles it, and the absolute sheer boredom of it would turn your hair white. I chuckled, and we ran our remaining laps in silence. I waved her and headed to the showers to rinse off before my sauna. I hoped I wasn't going to regret leaving the mess deck. At least there we had Pip for amusement. At 2100, I headed over to deck berthing to catch up with Pip and ran into him and Sarah just getting in from the galley. So how was your first full day, Sarah? I asked her. Long, but fun in a way, she said shyly. I think I'm going to like it. She went on into the berthing while Pip and I stood in the passage. Well, I asked him. He shrugged. I have no clue. She's like a different person. How'd she do? I asked. Great, Pip said. She catches on real fast, and she's got a knack with breads, as you probably noticed with the biscuits. I shrugged. Okay, well, show me some yarn. Pip grinned and led me into deck berthing. He opened his locker. It was full of yarn. 
Then he opened the locker that went with the empty bunk under his. It was full, too. I started laughing. My dog and her little puppies, Pip. How many are there? One hundred skeins. Two hundred grams each. They sell it by weight? Pip shrugged. Apparently. I should have talked to Sean a little more, I guess. I thought it would be like length or something awkward like that to calculate. How much was it? A hundred creds, Pip said. A cred each? I asked. Pip laughed. Yeah, it's insane, but that's what they charge me. They were selling it for three in the booth, so their markup was either really high or they really needed to clear some inventory. He closed the lockers, pulled out his tablet, and we settled at the table. Okay. Um, I've scheduled a meeting for the steering committee tomorrow afternoon, he said. Are you free? Yep, I said. The preliminary numbers are that the co-op took in 420 creds, which will be split between the booth captains and the co-op. That's more than enough to cover Dunsany Road, so we're good there. I'm impressed, I said. How do you and I do? I sold about 350 of the stones with the leather thongs on them and all the belts and buckles. We've covered the cost for all the goods, so anything we sell from here on is gravy. We've got a bit of cushion besides, he said with a grin. He turned the tablet around so I could see his calculations. I had to look twice. The number at the bottom of the column was 5,211. How? I asked him. Well, between the belts we sold in Marguerite and the buckled belts we sold here, along with a very large pile of very small stones, that's what's left after I took out the cost of the belts, the buckles, the stones, the thong, the yarn, oh, and the dyes. They were cheap, I think 12 creds for the lot. But 350 stones at 2 creds is only like 700, I told him. Your math skill is impeccable, he replied dryly, but they seem to have some sort of fetish on St. Cloud for that kind of thing because they were going for 3 to 5 creds each. The quartz was particularly popular, and I had more than one bidding war over a particularly good piece. I sold one for ten creds. I just gaped. That's crazy. He shrugged. Maybe, but that's what happened. Now, I'm going to keep 1,211 for the pool and split the remaining four kilocreds between us 50-50. Is that agreeable? I laughed. Yeah, I think that would be fine. I pulled out my tablet and watched my credit balance go from 520 to 2520. I stared at it for a few ticks in disbelief. Finally, I closed my tablet. Oh, are you done with the portable, I asked him. I know you were going to put your stuff up on the ship's computer. Well, it's been kind of crazy, he said with a grin, but uh, do you need it right away? I shook my head no, but I want to start working on some of that coursework. I think the plant sciences courses might be useful. A couple of days be okay, he asked. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be distracted by watch standing anyway, and I'm working on my full shear collection, I told him with a grin. Just then Sarah came out of the quad, wearing her ship tee and boxers. She seemed a little self-conscious, but crossed into the sand with only a smile and a little wave. Pip looked at me and said, We need to feed her more. Oh, what makes you say that? I asked. He shrugged. Something about the way her knees and elbows are the largest parts of her arms and legs, maybe. I stood then and said, Well, I need to rack out. I've got the morning watch. Not even going to say hi to your ex-bunky? I heard Bev say from the quad. Chuckling, I walked over and into the quad. Hey, I started to say, but out of habit, my eyes scanned across my old bunk. Clipped to the partition was a small statue with a bit of shell as the heart. What? Bev asked. She's got one of the statues, I said quietly. What statues? she asked. I sat on the lower across from Bev. Brill and I found this odd guy up in the flea. He had a table full of dozens of these little statues. Each had a bit of shell as the heart. When I saw them, they looked, I don't know, odd, like some kind of religious icon or something. 
Pip had come in behind me then, and I nodded up at the statue on Sarah's partition. Oh, I'll be, he said. Bev climbed out of her bunk and looked too. What is it? Some kind of seagull, she asked. I shook my head. No, it's a raven. Bev looked at me then. How can you tell? I shrugged. I don't know, but that's what it is. It was done by a different person than mine, but it's definitely a raven. You've seen a Welkie before, Sarah asked from the entrance to the quad. In the flea market the other day, I told her. Really? she asked. She held her arms self-consciously in front of her as she slipped into the quad and slithered up onto her bunk. She wrapped her blanket around her and seemed to feel better. I know I felt better because she was so bony it made me uncomfortable to look at her. Yeah, I told her. Funny old geezer had a table full of them. What did you call them? Welkies. They're carved from windrift, and each one has a bit of whelk shell as the heart, Sarah said. She pulled hers down and held it up so we could see it. The carving was rough and primitive. The shell had the barest tinge of purple to it. Some of the people in St. Cloud think of them as a kind of spirit guide, she said. A what? Bev asked. She seemed really interested. A spirit guide. Depending on how superstitious you are, they're anything from a curiosity akin to horoscope to a focal point for your spirit to an actual guide, Sarah said. Sitting there holding her raven and telling us about it, she seemed almost relaxed. Every little fishing village along the south coast has a shaman who carves these and hands them out to people. Usually if there's sickness or tragedy in the house, the shaman will come and leave one of these behind. That is a raven, right? I asked her. Oh, yes, she said, looking at me for the first time since she'd hopped into the bunk. Are you sure you saw someone selling them at the flea market? Yep, a strange man in homespun clothes and a weird way of talking. I thought it was just flea market patter. Patter, she asked. Bev explained, yeah, sometimes a vendor will have a little act they do to make their goods more appealing or to draw people in. Sometimes they'll tell jokes, sometimes they'll have a story about whatever it is they're selling, something like that. Ah, said Sarah, now I understand. Patter. She repeated it as if seeding the term in her brain. She focused back on the raven. This raven came to me about three weeks ago. It's kind of rough, but I like it. She looked at us again and explained. The smoother and more finished it is, the more highly valued. Also, the deeper the purple in the heart, supposedly the more power it has. This one's got just a little bit of purple, but he was powerful enough to lead me here, she said with a smile. Fip was looking at me then, and he said, Doesn't your dolphin have a really purple heart? You have a Welkie? Sarah asked in amazement. I reached into my pocket and pulled out the small packet. The string slipped off easily enough and the cloth fell away, leaving the dolphin exposed, the deep purple heart glinting in the overhead light. Wow, Bev said, looking from Sarah's raven to my dolphin and back. Bev started to reach for the dolphin but stopped and looked at me as if to ask permission. I shrugged and offered it to her. She lifted it out of the little piece of cloth and held it up so the light stroked off the sleek sides. As she was holding it up, Bev nudged me with her elbow and nodded at Sarah. Sarah was frozen, staring at the dolphin. Where did you get it? She asked breathlessly, not taking her eyes off it. I told you, there was a guy selling these at the flea market, I said softly. You bought it? She asked, looking me in the eyes. Well, no, I told her, not this one. I did buy some, ten of them, but not this one. This was a gift. It came to you, she said. And the way she said the word made me think it had some special kind of meaning. Came to me, I asked. What does that mean? Sarah shook herself then and took a deep, shuddering breath. She held it, closed her eyes, and slowly let the breath out. 
she spoke without opening her eyes. The tradition says that the Welkies know where there is need and will come to those who need their help. Each is tuned to a particular individual and will find their rightful owner. She opened her eyes again and looked about self-consciously. It sounds silly, I know. I never believed in the old stories myself. Bev touched her arm gently. Until your raven came to you, she asked. Sarah nodded. My husband was, is, a fisherman. He's looked up to in the village as a leader, but really he's a bully. He bullied my father, and I became his wife. These, and she indicated the bruises on her face, are from him. About three weeks ago, he threw me against the wall so hard I cracked my rib. She touched her right side. The shaman came to treat my ribs and my arm. She held up her left arm, and I could still see the residual bruising. When he left, the raven was on my nightstand. She took a few deep breaths, and I thought she was done, but she continued. That evening, just after sunset, I was sitting on the back stoop, and I had the raven in my hands. I was frightened because I, I didn't know what to think, what to believe. And as I sat there, a spark of light glinted off the shell of his heart. It startled me until I realized it was just a reflection of the orbital, glinting in the final rays of the setting sun, just a pinpoint of light in the darkening sky. I looked up in time to see another point of light split off and drift away. She paused before continuing. A week ago, my husband went out fishing. His boat goes out for days, sometimes weeks at a time, and as soon as he was gone, I left. I made my way to the Union Hall in Port Starvey, where Captain Jagone saved me. She gave a small, nervous laugh then, so was it the raven that led me here, or just a coincidence of reflected light? She shrugged one shoulder. What does it mean that you have that beautiful dolphin? Perhaps it's just a lovely memento from somebody who cares for you. Maybe it's a Welkie come to help you. Again, she shrugged. I don't know. What I know is I'm here. What I feel is that I'm safe for the first time in so long I don't remember. She heaved a great sigh then. There. That feels better. And she smiled. The little trance-like state was broken. Bev stroked the sides of the dolphin with the ball of her thumb as if remembering she still held it and handed it carefully back to me. Pip was staring at Sarah like he'd never seen her before. I knew the feeling. Bev said, well, I know a couple of mess attendants who need to get some sleep, even if some engine men don't. She stared pointedly at me. Oh, yeah, I shook myself right. I need to rock out myself. It's been a long day. Before I left, I turned to Sarah and said, thank you for telling us about the Welkies. I knew there was more to these than simple statues. She smiled and shrugged. Well, that's the story. What you believe in is up to you. True, I said. And thanks for trusting us with your story. Lois will take care of you. I smiled at her and headed for my own bunk. It had been a long day. Thanks for listening to Episode 6 of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is from the Banks of Newfoundland, an Irish jig recorded in September of 1928 by Peter James Conlon and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus. 
offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandis.com/golden. Thank you.